The Sandlot, a classic. How many of you have seen it? 25 years ago, I saw that in the theater, and it became one of my favorite movies. We used to watch it all the time. I mean, the premise of that clip, keep your eye on the ball, is fundamental in sports, right? Golf, football, baseball, dodgeball, whatever. Keep your eye on the ball. And again, we used to watch it all the time. It's interesting. It's kind of a life principle. Um, the eye is the window to the soul. And what you look at and what you read and what you watch gets in and affects or infects. You know, we used to watch it. And then one day in church, if you've seen this movie, it's a great movie, but the kids don't talk nicely to each other. And we were out in the courtyard back here, and Zach was three. And luckily then he had a lisp. He couldn't understand what he was saying. And he said some words that he learned in this. His eyes, the window to the soul, right? And somebody goes, what did he just say? And I'm like, I don't know. Keep your eye on the ball. What we have in 1 Timothy, if you get a chance, take your Bibles and, and turn to 1 Timothy, is the next leadership lesson Paul gives to Timothy in regards to teachers in the church. He's addressed this earlier and he comes back to this topic, specifically false teachers. And the, and the principle is this. What you look at or how you look or where you look is where you lead. Keep your eye on the ball. Where you look is where you lead. And the false teachers, he comes back to warn Timothy. He'd already addressed it earlier. He comes back and he uh, gives some more specifics in the scriptures that we're going to look at. That there are some leaders who have started looking in the wrong direction. And it's moved them to a different place to where they're leading people the wrong way. Where you look is where you lead. And so he's exhorting Timothy, again, this young pastor. And he's calling out false teachers. What I love about the scriptures we're going to look at today is it's very systematic. And I've tried to put it in an outline form this week that is easy to follow and understand. We're just going to move through verse by verse. And what we're going to see is that these false teachers have shifted in their message. They have a specific message that is shifted. They've taken their eye off the ball. And since they've shifted their message, their marks, their character has been changed. And then he moves to their motives. And he's directing Timothy how to lead the church and protect the church from false teachers that have the wrong message, the wrong marks, and the wrong motives. So grab your Bibles, 1 Timothy Chapter 6, we're going to cover verses 3 through 10. And it starts right off with uh, the profile of a false teacher, their message. Follow along with me in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, pause. So we see the message has changed. Different doctrine. This is a Greek word, and it's a compound to heteros. Heteros means different, another, or foreign. 
heterodoxy versus orthodoxy. They've shifted. They've got a different teaching that they began to focus on, that they're looking at. It doesn't agree with the words, the sound words of Jesus, the words that Jesus spoke himself, and not just Jesus, but the apostles and the scriptures. The word teaching here is didasco. It's to teach, to exhort. Listen, this is not someone who is merely has a different perspective on non-essential doctrine, doctrine that doesn't matter. This isn't even talking to somebody who advocates a different ministry mission or vision or method. It's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul has in mind someone who has strayed from God's word and is now forming their opinions and their beliefs based on their experience or their desires. That they have shifted away from the essentials or they've changed the essentials. They've gone to a different orthodox. It's unorthodox. I think it's important that we understand the difference between essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine. I mean, churches divide over non-essential all the time. As a matter of fact, I think, for the most part, the denominations everything else have different opinions and beliefs on non-essential, sometimes even traditions, not commands. I mean, Mark, Mark 7 is a classic example where Jesus lists this out. Look, you guys have replaced the commands of God for the traditions of man. I, I grew up in this, you know, where the traditions became more important than the commands. It didn't matter so much how you lived out in the world as long as we stuck to our traditions in the church. And not that traditions are bad, don't get me wrong. It's just there's a difference between essential and non-essential. And I could spend five weeks, this could be a great class on essential versus non-essential. But let me just generalize this in a, in a basic form real quickly and then we'll move on from the difference between essential and non-essential. You see, essential doctrine is essential because if it is skewed or if it is ignored or if it is changed, the consequences are catastrophic because they're eternal. That, that what makes specific doctrine absolutely essential is if you miss them or change them or ignore them, your eternal soul is at stake. I mean, the truth of the gospel is essential. Essential doctrine convicts. It affirms and distinguishes truth from error. Let me give you some some basics here, okay, so that we just, some illustrations. I'm not going to go into great detail. There's some umbrella essentials, like the sovereignty of God is essential. A lot of false doctrine lowers God and makes God into a man. And what applies to man or what applies to humans also applies to God. It comes across, well, that's not fair. That's not really who God is. God really wouldn't do that. 
But it is essential that we keep the supremacy and the character of God at a high view. Even the characters and the traits about God that are hard to understand or that are sometimes not popular. The sovereignty of God is huge. The authority of Scripture is an essential doctrine. If you don't have the authority of Scripture, then it's whatever everybody else thinks. There has to be a standard or a measure of how we come to truth. And anything that is outside of God's word isn't authoritative. There's good information out there. I'm not saying it's, it's not necessarily true. But if a leader or a pastor stands up and gives direction that is not supported in scripture, this is not good. Specifically, and this is the major thing, in regards to the way of salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mission. You see, there's so much false teaching in our world. False gospel. You know, if you just, if you just give more money, then God will bless you more. That's a prosperity gospel. That's not true. You know, this, this bad thing you're going through, this affliction, it's because you just haven't prayed enough and you just don't have enough faith. That's a false gospel. Or a current one that's really popular is serve, serve, serve. Just do as good as you can, as much as you can, and you'll earn your way. Read your Bible, pray, do your devotions, memorize, and you'll earn your way back to God. Follow the law and you'll earn your way back to God. That is a false gospel. It is for by grace you are saved, through faith, not of your works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Anything that changes that is a false gospel. You see, a lot of us have experienced in our faith freedom from the problem of sin. We understand this, that God rescued us. He took our place. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross to free us from the problem of sin. But for a lot of us, we've never experienced freedom from the power of sin. And since we don't experience that freedom, we feel like, well, I gotta earn my way to please God. And we go right back into the law. That's what Galatians is all about. As a matter of fact, in a couple months, we're gonna be moving through the book of Galatians and talking about this. It's gonna be great, I hope. Because <laughs> a lot of us have given into some false things and we think, man, I gotta earn my way. I've gotta please God. I've gotta do these things. And no, that eliminates grace. This is essential or if, if there's a teacher that stands up and says, you know what, all religions are the same and all roads lead to God. doesn't matter what you, that isn't true. The Bible doesn't support that. Neither does the Quran, neither does the Book of Mormon. I've read them. They all have their absolute, this is the only way. So somebody's wrong, right? Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4 says, there's, neither is there salvation in any other for there's only one name under heaven given among men whereby we are saved. That is Jesus. That is an essential truth. These false teachers are adding to the truth. They're adding to scripture. They're adding way. And specifically, we know in the church, they're telling them, hey, you need to be circumcised or you need in other areas. They need, they're adding to the law. Specifically in Galatians, that's what they're doing. False teachers produce worldliness because the message focuses on the world. It's subtle. By the way, the false teachers aren't standing up and they believe what they're teaching. 
I mean, I believe what I'm teaching right now, and you should vet me in regards to what I'm saying with Scripture, because I'm a fallible person. Be kind to me. Just let Heidi know, and she can discipline me. Don't write a card in the thing that says, you know, he was way off. No, you can. I'll call you, and we'll talk about it. Because I'm, I'm fallible. But, but the sound teachers, what they do is they look at Scripture and their teaching aligns with the word and oftentimes contradicts or goes against the world or the culture. One of the best tests, not a perfect test, but one test in regards to what somebody's teaching is the character of their life. Is it producing godliness in their relationship? Nobody's perfect. There's not a single pastor that's going to stand on the stage that is perfect. And I'm at the front of the line. Paul Tome is five or six back. Right, Paul? <laughs> but he's going to work hard this week to catch up. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. You know, there, there are leaders that can give a presence of godliness. They can talk the talk and they can, they can look like they've got it all together, but they can only cover up for so long. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in the next book, or Timothy, 2 Timothy, about a group of people who have the appearance of godliness but deny its, his power, the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so these false teachers have changed to a different message that fits their desires. And it sounds good. But it's off from what Jesus and the apostles taught. And then Paul moves to the marks. Their message is off, and then he moves to their marks, kind of what you see, almost like a birthmark. You can see it. I have a birthmark right here, and then I have a birthmark that you can see. It's like a red spot. I didn't do anything, but that's how I was born. And then I have one on my head where no hair grew. So when I actually had hair, there was no hair there. So I had to, even at age 16, I had a comb over. So I just decided to shave it all off. Verse 4, let's look at the marks. The message is off. Here are the marks. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved in truth. I want to pause right there. Do you see the marks? The message is off, and the character is off. The first mark is conceded. It's a primary character flaw in this false teacher's life. And the word conceded means illusion about one's self. A conceited person is deceived in his view because He's deceived about himself. He regards himself and his own opinions as absolute. His way is best. And oftentimes the arguments of his way being best are on non-essentials. Not necessarily the essentials, but they can be. And there's two results that Paul lists as results from being conceited or prideful. The first result is understands nothing. 
he doesn't know that he understands nothing. He thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's got the answer for everything. Understands nothing translates from a participle dependent in regards to the language on puffed up with conceit. These are linked. That's why it's a result. They're so conceited that they have no understanding, but they have all the information. And this information to always be right to have all this information blinds them from understanding what other people are either experiencing or dealing with. It's just nobody can line up with their intellect. They know. And so their relationships are unhealthy. And specifically, their closest relationships. You see it playing out in family and kids or relatives. That the false teacher will draw people in by the masses, but the people that are closest to them, there's controversy and there's struggle. False teachers peddle error not because of lack of information, but because they lack character in regards to their heart. They don't want what God wants. Their teaching will sound like it. But when you look closely, the message isn't there. And their lives don't reflect it. So as he addresses the message and tries to give Timothy direction, he looks at the marks, but then he changes and he looks and reveals the motive of the false teacher. At the end of verse five, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The verbiage here in the word gain has to do with money and wealth. Their motive is to get and they peddle this message that is palatable to people who don't understand truth. They prey on the weakness and the gullibility of people in their hurt and their pain or their weak faith under the motive of financial gain. They're not content. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I must be godly because look how much God has blessed me. Look at what I have. Look at all this. God wouldn't bless me if I were. Those are false teachings. Those are not true. And what I love about the rest of what we're going to look at is Paul then shifts in the next four verses and he gives clear advice to Timothy. He gives facts in these words on how to be content and not fall in the trap of wealth. 
I call these facts because he makes statements that reveal how a person is supposed to be content and not fall into false teaching. So if you're writing anything down, write these four things down. I think they'll be the most applicable for all of us. Here they are. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness isn't a means of gaining wealth. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Wealth, number one, does not bring contentment. It doesn't. The word contentment here means an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace despite outward circumstances. That we're just, we're content with what we have. We're content with what's going on in our lives. There's even such thing as holy discontent or holy content. Paul, t- Paul talks about being content no matter what in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned in whatever state I'm in, to be content. I've learned to be content. True contentment comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. A person who depends on material things for peace and assurance will never be satisfied. Material things always have a way of losing their appeal. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that the more you try and grip stuff, the more stuff and materialism grips you? And the first point, Paul's saying, look, godliness is being content no matter what. I call this the Christmas effect. You've probably heard me talk about this. You remember as a kid, it was like Christmas was amazing. You get up, you probably still think that as an adult. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was just, when you were a kid, you just couldn't wait. And you opened up those gifts, and it was awesome. It was just like, yes, this is amazing. It's a great feeling. And then three months later, that feeling isn't there anymore. My birthday's in February, so I get a jump start a couple months later. Those of you who have birthdays in September, forget it. You don't get that jump start until later in the year. I think it's why the movie Elf is so popular. You seen that movie? We started watching it to kind of kick off the Christmas spirit elf he's just so happy and it's just like this great feeling Santa! and he's just yeah, uh, but it gets you in the spirit but it doesn't last long as a matter of fact if you keep watching elf after christmas you're like done i'm done with this elf character buddy the elf is driving me nuts this isn't reality he's just stuff wears off and so then we if we're not careful we get more stuff get new stuff and we just keep going and going and going Wealth does not bring contentment. Verse 7, we, for we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. Wealth doesn't last. It doesn't bring contentment. And Paul's saying, it doesn't last. Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I shall return. Solomon said, as he has come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he, is, that can, he can carry in his hand, Ecclesiastes 5. Wealth doesn't bring contentment. 
It does not last. And then he goes on in verse 8. If we have food and clothing, these we will be content. We need to learn to be content in the provision of our basic needs. Our basic needs. Story about a simple Quaker who was watching his new neighbor move in with all the furnishings and expensive, quote, toys that successful people have. The Quaker finally went over to his new neighbor and said, I quote, Neighbor, if thou dost needeth, I'm doing the best I can here, anything, cometh to see me, and I will tell thee how to get along without it. <laughs> Wealth doesn't bring contentment. It doesn't last. We need to learn to be content, Paul's saying, in our basic provisions of food and clothing, shelter. Everything above that is a blessing. It's frosting on the cake, right? We need to be content with you. Oh, I don't like cake without frosting. Okay, maybe you do but you get the point. We need to be content and learn to be content with basic needs. And then verse nine, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless, harmful, sorry, desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The desire for wealth will lead to sin. It will lead to destruction. The desire for more, 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 more will lead you down a path of dysfunction, dissatisfaction, destruction. Wealth doesn't bring contentment. Wealth doesn't last. We need to learn to be content with our basic provisions. It doesn't mean that we can't have more things. That's not what we're talking about. It's the desire then for more wealth that leads to destruction. And what I, real, real quickly, what I love about verse 9 is that he kind of gives four steps to that destruction. Did you see that? Four quick steps on how desire leads us to destruction. Think about it. Step one is temptation. We fall into temptation. This word is test. We're tested, and our, our, when, when temptation comes, it tests our true nature. We all struggle and deal with temptation. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives clear direction, not so much on how to resist temptation, but how to flee temptation. Temptation comes, it's that first step where something comes up, it's like, man, we're tempted. We know what we can feel, it's like gravity. And then that second step is a snare. The Greek term is pegasus. It has a straightforward meaning, trap. So it's like a temptation comes and it gets our curiosity and we have to decide, are we going to flee or are we going to step into that trap? In Greek literature, the Trojan horse is called the wooden pegasus. Temptation is a trap. Just as one lie leads to a web of lies, one compromise can lead to to a whole loss of integrity, bit by bit by bit. 
And so we're tempted, and then there's a snare or a trap, and then that next step is senseless and harmful desires. The, the word here is foolishness, mindlessness. There's more than just a lack of understanding. It's just, it's just foolish. And it leads to harm. And then last, ruin and destruction. What's interesting about these words is they're oftentimes used in the New Testament as words to explain eternal separation. Like we, we start taking these steps and they lead us to separation from God because sin takes hold and leads us to sin or leads us to, temptation comes hold, leads us to sin and then we're separated from God. But the truth of the gospel changes all that. It is essential in our faith that Jesus came, lived, was put on the cross, died, and rose again to restore us back to God. And then Paul closes this section with some pretty profound words. You gotta look closely because I think these words have been misquoted a lot. It's probably one of the most misquoted scriptures in the Bible, especially by false teachers. He says this, for the love of money is the root of, all kinds of evil. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that is the root of evil. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The word order here is that it's their fault. They walked this path God will redeem them with truth, but they have given their love to money. Scriptures say you can't love two masters, hate one and love the other. Their unwise choices made many sorrows, beginning with this decision to love created rather than the creator. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy here he kind of uses this where you look is where you lead metaphor. I'm, I'm adding to that. That's my exposition of it. He uses it for two weeks. This week to explain the message, marks and motives of a false teacher. Next week he focuses with the same thought on Timothy himself and his life and his leadership. So where are you in regards to this. Where you look is where you lead. Think, think about it. When I was in high school, um, my, buddy, my best friend had a motorcycle. He had several, so he, he would, we'd go motorcycle riding. And it's where I learned this phrase or this word target fixation. Have you heard of this? In motorcycle riding, target fixation is if you look at something specific, you'll hit it. And my buddy said, hey, if you're driving down the road or whatever, you're taking a turn, don't look at the ditch or don't look at an object or you're going to end up hitting it. And I, I said, okay, well, that, all right. It didn't make sense to me until I was driving down a straight road and I saw a pole and I'm like, okay, don't look at the pole. Don't look at the pole. Bam, I, I was looking right at the pole and I hit it. He's like, were you looking at the pole? N no. You were looking at the pole. It's the same with surfing. I learned this the hard way, surfing. It's a very frustrating experience. 
is the guy said, look at the shore, not at the wave. And I struggled, and I struggled. I could never, I could never surf because I kept looking at the wave. It's funny where we look, where we put our focus, that's where we live. So you, you may not be leading, but you're living your life. And where you focus is where you will live. And the hard part about our world is that we live in a dark culture. And if we focus on the culture around us, we'll, even though we don't want to, we'll become and begin to reflect that culture. This is, I said this to the high schoolers, this is partly why we do that SMI commitment of fasting from media and movies and music and all that stuff that's so, it's becoming harder and harder with our culture. But, but what kids learn is they, they get away from that and all of a sudden they begin to see things differently. That's why I love Hume Lake. We go there and I don't even have to say, you can't be on your phone, we're at camp. Their phone doesn't work. Right, Rosalind? It doesn't work. And so all of a sudden, kids' focus begin to change. They begin to see things and experience things that are truths about God and who he is and fellowship and community. And then they come back and they go right back in the culture. And the darkness just seeps back in. So let me ask you, what, what do you look at in your world? What do you spend your time? It, how do you see the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel? How do you see that? That God is rescuing, rescuing you from darkness? And does that message come into your heart and life as you live in the world and change the way you look do you have re-birthmarks? And what are your motives in life? Is there contentment with what you've been blessed with? Is there a level of grace to others that don't have those blessings? that you want to share with them. Let me tell you something. I think our church gets this part really well. Paul Edwards really modeled generosity, and it was reflected in you last week. Again, thank you. It keeps us from being stingy, right? Where you look is where you'll live. And are you looking to the light of Christ and the love of God to transform your heart. This is the gospel. And change the way you live every single day. We're gonna keep talking about this next week as Paul addresses Timothy in his personal pursuit of spiritual faith. I'm gonna invite you to join me as we pray. Lord, help us um, as we move through our week to not live in the world on the world's terms, but to live in the world believing and living out your message of grace and hope and light. Give us the ability, Lord, to do something that is so hard, and that is to love you in a dark world so that people see and hear about your truth in our lives. 
Lord, may we be and continue to be a community of grace and hope and love to each other and to others. Thank you for your word that lights our paths. Give us courage to follow your truth every day and every moment of every day. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.